Travel. Travel for work, travel for pleasure, travel by land, sea or air, at your leisure, wherever you're going and wherever you've been. It's all in July's Talking Magazine. This month we visit Scotland, Japan and Switzerland. We take in a sweeping vista of the Grampian Mountains and a very close-up view of Gypsy Jazz. Hello, I'm Pippa Curtis and also in the studio today are Phil. Hello. Jane. Hello. And to get us underway, Catherine. Hello. I'm going to begin by talking about ferries. Nowadays, when we talk about ferries, we often mean the large ferries that take us from the UK to Europe and Ireland, or those that take us to the Isle of Wight and the Isle of Man, or those that travel between the Scottish West Coast Islands. We may have toured the Greek islands by ferry, or taken a trip on the Staten Island ferry to view Manhattan from the water and visit Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. Once you begin thinking about them, ferries are everywhere across the world. But where you have rivers, and most older towns and cities grew up around rivers because of trade and communication, you find instances of older, smaller ferries designed to transport people and livestock from one bank to the other. Many have become tourist attractions. The chain ferry in Stratford-upon-Avon is a popular item on the itinerary of many visitors, for example. Ferries are an ancient means of transport and travel. Even when a bridge has been built, and Worcester, it seems, has had some form of a bridge since the 11th century, ferries have offered convenience for crossing a deep and powerful river at multiple points. Indeed, Worcester has had a number of ferries across the Severn in previous centuries, and still has one, the ferry that runs on weekend afternoons during the summer, staffed by volunteers between the cathedral and Chapter Meadows. From north to south, in the environs of Worcester, there was the Holt Ferry, just by Ombersley, and another one at Hawford. A punt ferry, famously operated between Beverley and the Camp Inn at Grimley in Victorian times, and until the 1930s, people could walk across the meadows on the east bank and shout to the innkeeper at the Camp Inn to ferry them over. When Barbourne Park was sold and its grounds built over in the 1880s, the Keepax Ferry was established, which plied between the East Bank, just north of what is now Gellivelt Park, to the West Bank, where people could walk along the riverside paths there to Hallow, and again the Camp Inn. Opposite Pitchcroft Racecourse, an ancient inn, are we detecting a pattern here, called the Dog and Duck, is associated with a ferry at that point. There was a ferry situated by the Grandstand Hotel, which the hotel's proprietor attempted to reinstate in 1966, but this was not a success. Further downriver, there was the ancient Pixham Ferry operating between the West Bank and Kempsey from about 1600, and it only finally ceased in 1947. The Cathedral Ferry has been documented quite extensively by local historians. It's closely linked not only to the Cathedral, but also to the house above the passage from Cathedral Green to the river, known as Watergate, where the ferryman or woman would live. Several individuals have been identified, notably Elizabeth Wise, the first ferrywoman, who gave her name in the form of Betty to the boat itself. The Cathedral funded the ferry at a final cost of £30 a year until 1958. In the earlier 1980s, a local architect, Nicolette Baines, suggested through the Worcester Civic Society that the ferry might be reinstated, and this was achieved, ultimately through the ferry being staffed by trained volunteers, with fares being raised for charity. 
The Cathedral Ferry is an exceptional feature of our inner city landscape here in Worcester and is a survival thanks to civic pride and the enthusiasm of volunteers. Travelling by ferry is also a trip full of symbolism. It's clear that ferries have always served those ordinary people who didn't have access to horses or carriages that might take them out of their way to the next bridge. Crossing a river has been a task for all, and I'd like to finish by invoking the ancient mythology of the ferry. To the Greeks, Charon, the ferryman, transported the recently deceased across the rivers Styx and Acheron. He took them from the land of the living to Hades, the land of the dead. A coin deposited in the mouth of the departed paid him for the trip. When we step into the ferry by the cathedral and pay our fee, we're echoing a profounder journey. Thank you, Catherine. We'll be taking an even closer look at the cathedral ferry in a later edition of the magazine. But it's worth mentioning here that the cathedral ferry volunteers have quite recently delivered a cheque to the Worcester Talking newspaper, for which very many thanks. Carrying cheques and other mail, and plying between London and Glasgow, the LMS nightly postal train was celebrated in a documentary made by the Post Office Film Unit way back in 1936, and featured some very well-known verse written especially for it by W.H. Auden. Phil? This poem is written with a very special rhythm. It's the rhythm of a train hauled by a steam engine and the metre evokes its laboured beats as it climbs uphill in the Pennines and then speeds up, as does the train, rushing down to the major Scottish cities. This is the night mail crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, the girl next door. Pulling up Beta, a steady climb, the gradient's against her, but she's on time. Past cotton grass and moorland boulder, shoveling white steam over her shoulder. Snorting noisily, she passes silent miles of wind-bent grasses. Birds turn their heads as she approaches, stare from bushes at her blank-faced coaches. Sheepdogs cannot turn her course, they slumber on with paws across. In the farm she passes, no one wakes, but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. Dawn freshens, her climb is done. Down towards Glasgow she descends, towards the steam tugs yelping down a glade of cranes, towards the fields of apparatus, the furnaces, set on the dark plain like gigantic chessmen. All Scotland waits for her. In dark glens beside pale green locks, men long for news. Letters of thanks, letters from banks, letters of joy from girl and boy, receipted bills and invitations to inspect new stock or to visit relations, and applications for situations and timid lovers' declarations, and gossip, gossip from all the nations, news circumstantial, news financial, letters with holiday snaps to enlarge in, letters with faces scrawled on the margin, letters from uncles, cousins and aunts, letters to Scotland from the south of France, letters of condolence to highlands and lowlands. Written on paper of every hue, the pink, the violet, the white and the blue, the chatty, the catty, the boring, adoring, the cold and official and the hearts outpouring, clever, stupid, short and long, the typed and the printed and the spelt all wrong. Thousands are still asleep, dreaming of terrifying monsters or a friendly tea beside the band in Cranston's or Crawford's, asleep in work in Glasgow, asleep in well-set Edinburgh, asleep in Granite Aberdeen. They continue their dreams, but shall wake soon and hope for letters, and none will hear the postman's knock without a quickening of the heart, for who can bear to feel himself forgotten?'
I love that poem. Thank you, Phil. Also starting their journey in London, but with their sights firmly set on Canterbury, was the group of pilgrims featured in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Over to you, Jane. So why Canterbury? Well, human history is stained all too frequently with crimes so enormous in scale that we find them ungraspable. Genocides, pogroms, mass deportations, crimes against whole races and whole nationalities. These outrages are literally unimaginable. The mind slips from them as a foot slips from a cake of ice. Individuals, on the other hand, attract attention. We can identify with them, and no crime against an individual has ever set moving such an immediate wave of horror and indignation as the event that took place in Canterbury Cathedral on the evening of the 29th of December, 1170, when four knights of Henry II burst in as the Archbishop Thomas Becket was celebrating Mass and beat him to death there in front of the altar. As far east as the Levant and as far north as the Arctic Circle, wherever there were people of the Christian faith, the shockwaves were felt. Becket had shown his worth in many ways. He had been a brave commander on the battlefield. He had held high office in the state, being no less than the Lord Chancellor of England, and he was a pious and merciful prelate. In the following February, Becket was canonised. The Pope evidently pushed through this normally rather slow procedure at a phenomenal rate, but not fast enough for the common people. They decided immediately that Thomas was a saint, a holy, blissful martyr, and pilgrims began arriving at the cathedral almost as soon as the body was interred. By some quirk of hagiographical thinking, St Thomas became particularly associated with the miraculous healing of the sick. Pilgrimages occupied a central place in the life of the Middle Ages. All the elements of medieval Catholic Christianity are seen there in high relief, the beautiful piety and dedication, and also the superstition, fraudulence and rascality. After confessing one's sins, one might be ordered by one's priest to go on a pilgrimage as a penance, or, in serious illness or dire peril, the sufferer might make a vow to undertake a pilgrimage if spared. And at the other extreme, there might have been many who went on pilgrimages out of a thirst for adventure and to see the world. If by doing so, they could pick up a little spiritual merit that would stand them in good stead when they came face to face with St Peter, so much the better. And the thought must have helped them to bear up against the discomforts and disappointments that travel always brings with it. In an age where good roads and reliable maps were scarce, a traveller's best chance of being reasonably safe and provided for lay in following one of the principal routes of pilgrimage. For to take care of pilgrims, to see they had somewhere to sleep and some kind of nourishment, was accounted a charitable act that earned merit in heaven much like the pilgrimage itself, and many religious houses made it their business not only to offer rest and hospitality, but to keep roads and bridges in repair. Thus looked after, even people with very little money, no more in some cases than could be gathered round by a, a whip-round in their native village, the donor of a few pence also clocking up some celestial merit, so they could travel large distances. 
The four most frequently visited foreign shrines were Rome, Jerusalem, St. James of Galicia, and the Spanish shrine at Compostela. Within England, the most visited shrines were that of the Virgin Mary at Walsingham, where the church and chapel, destroyed at the Reformation, had been built up by generous donations of gifts into a blaze of gold and jewels, and as we have seen, the shrine of Thomas in Canterbury. Chaucer parades his pilgrims before our eyes with unforgettable clarity. His writing has retained its freshness across 600 years. Small wonder, since he built it out of non-perishable materials. It's highly visual, but always in a hard-edged, unsentimental way, with no blurring of one effect into the next. He presents his characters, diverse as they are, in clear outline and primary colours, deliberately making them as vivid and memorable as figures on a pack of cards, except that where the card figures are frozen into two-dimensional immobility, Chaucer's people are in constant movement, riding along, talking, laughing, gesticulating and quarrelling. The scene he puts before us in the prologue is all energy, variety and colour. It's the great verbal pageant of the Middle Ages. This method of presentation was no doubt the result of conscious and skilful decision-making on Chaucer's part, for he was a meticulous artist with a lifetime of work behind him and as interested in the form of what he wrote as in its content. And yet, granted all this, it seems to me probable that this fresh, vivid way of seeing the human scene like a photographer who waits for the moment of strong sunlight before clicking the shutter, is temperamental. Chaucer saw people like that, and described them like that, because he was that kind of man. Just as Ben Jonson, using something of the Chaucerian technique of plastic hardness, made his comedies into a similar verbal pageant, depicting a society in the first phase of unrestrained capitalism, as Chaucer had depicted the last moment of the High Middle Ages. And here is one of the pilgrims, the wife of both. A worthy woman from beside Bath City was with us, somewhat deaf, which was a pity. In making cloth, she showed so great a bent, she bettered those of Epen Ghent. In all the parish, not a dame dare stir towards the altar steps in front of her. And if they did, so wroth was she as to be quite put out of charity. Her kerchiefs were of finely woven ground. I dared have sworn they weighed a good ten pound, the ones she wore on Sunday on her head. Her hose were of the finest scarlet red and garted tight. Her shoes were soft and new. Bold was her face, handsome and red in hue. A worthy woman all her life, what's more, she'd had five husbands all at the church door. Apart from other company in youth, no need just now to speak of that, forsooth. And she had thrice been to Jerusalem, seen many strange rivers and passed over them. She'd been to Rome and also to Boulogne, St James of Compostela and Cologne, and she was skilled in wandering by the way. 
She had gap teeth, set widely, truth to say. Easily on an ambling horse she sat, well wimpled up, and on her head a hat, as broad as a buckler or a shield. She had a flowing mantle that concealed large hips. Her heels spurred sharply under that. In company, she liked to laugh and chat, and knew the remedies for love's mischances, an art in which she knew the oldest dances. Thanks, Jane. I haven't heard that for a very long time. Takes me back to GCSE English, or O-level in my time. Well, her literary style is very different from Geoffrey Chaucer's, but Rachel Joyce wrote a very successful debut novel concerning a present-day pilgrim, Harold Fry. And I'm going to read a short extract describing Harold's journey through the Midlands. The book actually takes him all the way from Devon right up to Scotland, but I thought that this bit was particularly relevant as it's close to where we are here in Worcester. It had never been such a beautiful May. Every day the sky shone a peerless blue, untouched by cloud. Already the gardens were crammed with lupins, roses, delphiniums, honeysuckle and lime clouds of ladies' mantle. Insects cricked, hovered, bumbled and whizzed. Harold passed fields of buttercups, poppies, oxeye daisies, clover, vetch and campion. The hedgerows were sweetly scented with bowing heads of elderflower and wound through with wild clematis, hops and dog roses. The allotments too were burgeoning. There were rows of lettuce, spinach, chard, beetroot, early new potatoes and wigwams of peas. The first of the gooseberries hung like hairy green pods. Gardeners left out boxes of surplus produce for passers-by, with a sign, Help Yourself. Harold knew that he had found his way. He told the story about Queenie and the garage girl, and he asked strangers if they would be so good as to help. In return, he listened. He might be offered a sandwich, or a bottle of water, or a fresh set of plasters. He never took more than he needed, and gently refused lifts or walking equipment or extra packages of food to keep him going. Snapping a pea pod from a curling stem, he ate it greedily, like sweets. The people he met, the places he passed, were all steps in his journey, and he kept a place inside his heart for each of them. After the night in the barn, Harold continued to sleep outside. He chose dry places and was always careful not to upset things. He washed in public lavatories, fountains and streams. He rinsed his clothes where no one was watching. He thought of that half-forgotten world, lived in houses and streets and cars, where people ate three times a day, slept by night and kept each other company. He was glad they were safe, and he was glad too that he was at last outside them. Harold took the A roads, B roads, lanes and tracks, the compass quivered northwards and he followed. He went by day or by night as the mood took him, mile after mile after mile. If the blisters were bad, he bound them with duct tape. He slept when the need for it came, and then he returned to his feet and walked again. 
He went under the stars and the tender light of the moon when it hung like an eyelash and the tree trunks shone like bones. He walked through wind and weather and beneath sun-bleached skies. It seemed to Harold that he had been wanting to walk all his life. He no longer knew how far he had come, but only that he was going forward. The pale Cotswold stone became the red brick of Warwickshire and the land flattened into Middle England. Harold reached his hand to his mouth to brush away a fly and felt a beard growing in thick tufts. And yet the strangest part in all this was that a driver might overtake him and briefly observe an old fellow in shirt and tie, perhaps a pair of yachting shoes, and see no more than another man off down the road. It was so funny, and he was so happy, so much at one with the land beneath his feet, he could laugh and laugh with the simplicity of it. From Stratford he made his way to Warwick, south of Coventry. Harold met a convivial young man with soft blue eyes and sideburns that curled below his cheekbones. He told Harold his name was Mick and bought him a lemonade. Proffering his beer glass, he toasted Harold's courage. So you put yourself at the mercy of strangers, he said. Harold smiled. No, I'm careful. I don't hang about in city centres at night. I avoid trouble. But on the whole, the kind of people who stop to listen are the kind of people who are going to help. There have been one or two moments when I was afraid. I thought a man on the A439 was going to mug me, but he was actually about to offer me an embrace. He had lost his wife to cancer. I misjudged him because he was missing his front teeth. And you really believe you'll make it to Berwick? I don't push it. I don't hang about. If I just keep putting one foot in front of the other, it stands to reason that I'm going to get there. I've begun to think we sit far more than we're supposed to. He smiled. Why else would we have feet? The young man licked his lips as if he was savouring the taste of something that was not yet in his mouth. What you're doing is a pilgrimage for the 21st century. It's awesome. Yours is the kind of story people want to hear. Do you think I could trouble you for a packet of salt and vinegar crisps, said Harold. I haven't eaten since lunchtime. Before they parted, Mick asked if he might take Harold's photograph on his mobile phone. Just to remember you. Concerned the flash might upset several local men playing darts, he said, Could you manage it outside where I can get you on your own? He told Harold to stand beneath a sign that pointed northwest towards Wolverhampton. It's not where I'm going, said Harold but Mick said that the small detail wouldn't show up, what with the dark. Bedworth, Nuneaton, Twycross, Ashby de la Zouch, through Warwickshire, the western fringes of Leicestershire and into Derbyshire, on he went. There were days when he covered over 13 miles and others when the built-up streets confounded him and he walked fewer than six. Alfreton, Clay Cross, the silhouette of the crooked spire of Chesterfield announced the start of the Peak District. At a drop-in coffee morning in Dronfield, a man offered Harold his willow cane and squeezed his shoulder. Seven miles on, a shop assistant in Sheffield pressed her mobile into his hand so that he might ring home. Maureen assured him she was well, although there had been a small problem with a leaking showerhead. After that, she asked if he'd seen the news. No, Maureen, I haven't seen a paper since the day I set off. What is it? He couldn't be sure, but he thought she gave a small sob. And then she said, Well, you're the news, Harold. You and Queenie Hennessy. 
So I'm putting in a request for that book to be part of the uh, library here. So <laughs> you never know, you might be able to finish off the story sometime. The unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry started life as an afternoon drama in 2006 on BBC Radio 4 under the title To Be a Pilgrim. You may have heard it, but you almost certainly will have heard of the Radio 4 programme Desert Island Discs. It's one of Catherine's favourite radio shows and she's done some fascinating research about the programme, especially for this recording. Catherine. Thanks, Pippa. The idea of being shipwrecked on a desert island is familiar to us all. Robinson Crusoe is the most famous castaway, and it also happened long before that in the Odyssey to Odysseus and his crew. Tom Banks gave a memorable performance in a film in 2000 called Castaway. Being compelled to go back to nature, the experience of solitude, self-reliance, survival, all these fascinate us. Not surprisingly, then, the radio programme Desert Island Discs has been popular ever since it was first broadcast on the BBC Forces programme in January 1942. In February of this year, Desert Island Discs was judged by a panel of broadcasting industry experts to be the greatest radio programme of all time. Other programmes vying for the accolade included The Archers, Round the Horn and Hancock's Half Hour, in case you're wondering. You probably don't need to be reminded, but briefly, the programme is broadcast on Radio 4 on Sunday mornings with a repeat the following Friday. Each week, a guest is invited to select and introduce eight recordings to keep them company on the island. The choice of music forms the backbone of an interview in which the guest talks about their life story and their achievements. And at the end, the guest, always to be equipped with the complete works of Shakespeare and with the Bible or another appropriate spiritual or philosophical text, has to choose one book and one luxury item. In the 77 years of broadcasting, thousands of individuals have been shipwrecked on that desert island. The list includes actors, artists and writers, pop stars, sports people, scientists and doctors, and musicians, and there have even been some royals and prime ministers. Several have been invited more than once. The actor Michael Crawford has actually been the guest three times. You can listen to many, many of the programmes through BBC iPlayer and in podcasts. In terms of the choices, here are some interesting examples. In the array of classical music chosen, Vaughan Williams's The Lark Ascending and Beethoven's Ode to Joy from his Ninth Symphony are great favourites. When it comes to pop music, a guest selection will often include Frank Sinatra, The Beatles, Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Joni Mitchell. You get the idea. Younger guests do, of course, often choose more recent performers too. And... Indeed, the age profile and the mood of the programme has altered quite significantly over the years. It's not always been plain sailing for Desert Island Discs, or perhaps I should change the metaphor and say it's not always been clear skies and balmy weather. When Princess Margaret was the castaway in 1981, the episode met with criticism within the BBC. It was felt that by failing to probe potentially interesting statements, Roy Plumley had not encouraged his royal guests to be anything but monosyllabic. And this is a quote from Craig Brown, who's written a recent book on Princess Margaret. A current affairs producer argued that Plumley had simply been too obsequious, while a BBC governor judged that the final result had been quite simply terrible. 
Um, that kind of deference has gone out of fashion. But in our own age of celebrity, some guests can tend to be more interested in self-promotion than in reflective dialogue. My own favourite is the luxury item that's chosen. Some people can be quite predictable, writers and artists in particular. For example, J.K. Rowling and Judith Carr both chose writing or drawing implements together with an unlimited supply of paper. Some guests cheerfully acknowledge the ridiculousness of the whole matter. The singer Tom Jones, for example, selected a bucket and spade. Occasionally, more is revealed than perhaps the subject knows. For example, what do you make of the choice of Simon Cowell, the talent show judge? He chose a mirror. Other guests are delightful in the way they go along with the game. So the Cambridge Classics professor Mary Beard wanted the Elgin marbles as her luxury item. And the former Prime Minister, John Major, wanted a replica of the Oval Cricket Ground along with a bowling machine. <laughs> On a more serious note, though, many of the interviews do offer an, an opportunity to learn about someone in surprisingly personal ways. Formative childhood influences, moments of crisis, heartfelt engagement with a career or a vocation, all these have been elicited. And clearly the format and the skill of the interviewer helped to achieve this. Aside from the experience of feeling that we've come to know someone who's in the public eye, the programme's appeal has a lot to do, I think, with the way that it implicitly invites us to ask ourselves the same questions, to identify eight pieces of music that we'd want with us, to reflect on our own story, to work out how we might survive on that island. Are we optimistic or pessimistic, gregarious or alone? How much would we want our choices to construct a public persona rather than reveal a private self? So, you'll start for ten. What would your luxury item be? Oh, that's difficult. <laughs> coffee machine, please. A coffee machine. Yeah. Perfume. Perfume. Yeah. Well, I said I wanted a computer with the internet, but I'm told that that's probably not allowed. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to plug these things in. <laughs> Radio 3's answer to Desert Island Discs is maybe Private Passions. Author Robert McFarlane was one of the guests on that show, and in his book Landmarks, he attempts, as he puts it, to sing the world back into being. Phil. In this extract, uh, Pippa, McFarlane is writing about walking in the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland, an area he'd explored with his grandfather some years back, and so it has quite an emotional ring to it. The Nan Shepherd, to whom he refers, is a Scottish writer of the last century who wrote extensively about that particular area in a wonderful book called The Living Mountain. The place names quoted here are in Gaelic, so if you hear an odd sound, that's probably one of them. In the last days of September, ten years after reading Shepherd, I returned to the Cairngorms. I wanted to spend days and nights in the hills without fixed destinations. Too often I had been hurried across them by weather and logistics, unable to linger and pry. Shepherd called herself a peerer into corners, and I took this as my mandate to wander and to be distracted. With two friends I walked in from the north, through the dwarf pines of the Rothy Mercus forest, under a blue sky and a daytime moon, and into the Larich grew. It was hot work for autumn, the sun was slant but bright, mare's tail clouds furled 30,000 feet above us. A mile into the grew I saw a golden eagle catch a thermal near Lurch's crag, rise coil over coil in slow symmetry. 
It was only the second eagle I'd ever seen in the Cairngorms, and it set my heart hammering. Up the long shoulder of Swan Nalarich, we toiled over the tops of Briach, and at last onto the plateau proper, a huge upland of tundra and boulder at an altitude of about 4,000 feet. I heard a barking and saw to my northeast a flight of a hundred or so geese arrowing through the Larach Gru in a ragged V-shape. Because I had height, I looked down onto their flexing backs rather than up at their steady bellies as they passed. We made camp far across the plateau, near to the source of the Dee, the highest origin of any British river. I pitched my tent by a stream, looking southeast over the Larach Gru towards the battleship flanks of Karna Maim. Butterflies danced. There were no midges. I had some real coffee with me for the morning brew, and I was very happy indeed. Later that afternoon, we dropped 600 feet north off the plateau in search of Loch Quire a Lochain, the Loch of the Corrie of the Loch, which Shepherd prized as one of the range's recesses or hidden places. She had also visited it on a late September day and marvelled at the chilly clarity of its water and its secrecy as a site. It cannot be seen until one stands almost on its lip, she wrote. At the hour we reached it, a curved shadow had fallen across the corrie, which, when doubled by the surface of the water, perfectly mimicked the form of a raven's beak. We swam in the loch, which was steel blue and speckled on its surface with millions of golden grains of dust or pollen. The water was gin clear and bitingly cold. Sunset was close as we climbed back up to the plateau, so we waited for it on a westerly slope. As the sun lowered and reddened, cloud wisps blew up from the valley and refracted its light to form a dazzling parhelion, concentric halos of orange, green and pink that circled the sun. Once the sun had gone, a pale mist sprang up from the plateau and we waded knee-deep in its milk back to camp, where we watched a yellow moon rise above the Breirach Tours. After dark had fallen, I walked to the edge of the plateau where the young Dee crashed down a thousand feet into the great inward fissure of the Garb Croix. The air that night was so mild that there was no need for a tent. I woke up soaked in dew and shrouded in cloud that had rolled up. We were in a white world. Visibility was twenty yards at most. Blinded of sight for a full hour in a way I have never done before, I sat and simply listened to the mountain. Ptarmigans zithered and churred to one another, dotterels cued and water moved. It chuckled, burred, glugged, shattered. The sound of all this moving water is as integral to the mountain as pollen to the flower, Shepherd had reflected beautifully. She wrote, one hears it without listening as one breathes without thinking. But to a listening ear, the sound disintegrates into many different notes. The slow slap of a lock, the high clear trill of a rivulet, the roar of spate. On one short stretch of burn, the ear may distinguish a dozen different notes at once. That morning we searched in the mist for the wells of Dee, the spring that marked the river's true birthplace. We began at the plateau rim, and from there we followed it back uphill, always taking the larger branch where the stream forked. At last we reached a point where the water rose from within the rock itself. Shepherd had also made this journey to the source and confronted the matter in its purest form. Water, that strong white stuff, one of four elemental mysteries can be seen here at its origins, she wrote. Like all profound mysteries, it is so simple that it frightens me. It wells from the rock and it flows away. For unnumbered years it has welled from the rock and flowed away. The proof of the mountain's mindlessness was to Shepherd both thrilling and terrifying. 
the Cairngorms exceeded human comprehension. What she called the total mountain could never totally be known. Yet if approached without expectation, the massif offered remarkable glimpses into its being. Walking under Shepherd's influence, led by her language, I had enjoyed an astonishing time of gifts. The eagle, the geese, the blue-gold loch, the parhelion, the mists, the springs. Those few days in the hills had compressed into them a year's worth of marvels, and each had its precedent in the living mountain. The fortuity of it all was acute, approaching the eerie. It was as if we had walked into the pages of Nan's book, though of course her book had emerged out of the Cairngorms themselves, so we were merely completing that circuit of word and world. Thank you, Phil. There were some tricky words there. Talking of words, in the nine glossaries of landmarks, Robert McFarland gathered around 2,000 terms for aspects of landscape, weather and life. Useful material if you're into crosswords. John Plush has devised an audio crossword which starts and ends with aspects of travel. Now, I'm not sure if this really qualifies as a crossword, but that's what it sort of resembles. But it doesn't rely on the written word. We're interested only in the sound of each syllable in the word, like this. A starting point is a common word or expression, for example, goods wagon. Goods wagon has three syllables. We're not interested in the spelling, though, merely the sound of each syllable. Goods, wag, hun. The next word begins with the second syllable from goods wagon, that is to say, wag. And I can tell you that this one is a two-syllable word and is the common name for a small bird. So that's a two-syllable word that begins with wag. How about wagtail? <laughs> Not too difficult. The last syllable of that word, tail, is the starting syllable in our next word, which itself has three syllables. It's hyphenated and means the same as bespoke. Three syllables meaning bespoke and starting with tail, tailor-made. Get the idea? As we go on, you may want to keep the pause button handy to give yourself time to think. So, the last syllable of that word is the first syllable of our next, which is also a three-syllable word. And the clue to this one is a woman's early years, her youth. I'll let you work that one out. Remember, it begins with the last syllable from tailor-made. Another three-syllable word is next. This one begins with the second syllable of the last one. Three syllables. And the clue is mass or thickness. Almost there. Our penultimate word begins with the last two syllables of that last word and refers to the state of belonging to a particular country. This word has four syllables. The state of belonging to a particular country. The last syllable of that last word is on its own, the last word in our puzzle, and, like goods wagon, is another form of transport. So what is that form of transport? Well, I've got ship, and this is how I got it. 
I left you to find a word beginning with maid from tailor-made that means a woman's youth. Three syllables. Maid, maiden, maidenhood. Don't fret over the spelling, we're after the sounds. The next uses the middle syllable of maidenhood, den, as its first syllable, and it means mass or thickness. Den city. Our next word means the state of belonging to a particular country and has four syllables, the first two of which are the last two of den city. City, citizenship. And the last syllable of that is, of course, ship. Can you bear another one? First word, portmanteau. Take the second syllable of portmanteau to start off a three-syllable word meaning a shelf above a fireplace. Next, take the last syllable of that word to begin a three-syllable word meaning tranquility. The last syllable of that last word starts the next meaning to require. This word has four syllables. The last syllable of that last word is the second syllable of the next, which is a common root vegetable. It has three syllables, and I like mine mashed. Take the first syllable of the vegetable and use it to start off a similar sized word implying opportunity. Opportunity. The middle syllable of that word should describe a piece of equipment essential if you're going on holiday camping. So, how did you do? The second syllable of portmanteau is, of course, mant, giving you the first syllable of a shelf over a fireplace, mantelpiece. The last syllable of mantelpiece begins a word meaning tranquility, peacefulness. The next word, meaning to require, begins with the ness of peacefulness, necessitate. The last syllable of necessitate, tate, gives you the middle syllable of the root vegetable, which I also enjoy roast on a Sunday, potato. The first syllable of potato, the starting syllable of a word suggesting opportunity, what we should all like to have, potential. And if you're going off camping with your portmanteau in the back of the car, you mustn't forget to pack the middle syllable of potential, tent. I reckon that's potentially more challenging than the Times crossword. Kathleen Moran is a regular contributor to the Times and a while ago did a piece on a trip to Japan. It's too long an article to read in its entirety, so I have taken the liberty of cutting and pasting it a bit. To go to Japan is a long way. A long way. You fly over a great deal of tundra to get there. Russian tundra. Chinese tundra. 14 hours of tundra. There's so much, it's like someone's comically unspooling more tundra from a roll of tundra, and it will never end. The journey is very tundra-themed. 
as someone who would always prefer to go on a walking holiday in mid-Wales, perhaps daring to stop off in Hay-on-Wye for some paperbacks for extra thrills, it would be hard to tolerate this amount of tundra were I not happily in business class, under my business duvet, drinking my business wine. It is a reasonable bulwark against tundra ennui. But we are going to Japan, via tundra, because we have teenage girls. You see, once a child passes the age of 12, they want only two things from a holiday. Either fast cities, such as New York or Tokyo, or banana boats, from which they can Instagram themselves achieving holiday goals. We are going to Tokyo because the girls love neon, skyscrapers, sushi, shops that sell adorably mad dresses. We're going because Tokyo sells itself as essentially heaven for teenage girls. But in the meantime, tundra. Another three hours of tundra. Tuesday. We wake. Jet lag early in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, with Mount Fuji battling with the Tokyo skyline to be the most beautiful thing visible from the window. It's amazing. One of those views of a lifetime. But it is ignored in favour of the whole family gathering in the bathroom to marvel at the legendary Japanese toilets. Of course, everyone who goes to Japan knows about their 23rd century toilets. But there are elements that even the most ardent Clive James fan will still not be aware of. In service stations, they have a guide on the wall that shows you which cubicles are occupied, so you can go straight to a free one. The Japanese seem to have an unholy terror of having to try a door with the traditional tiny fingertip nudge to see if it's occupied. They have basically invented a toilet departures board, so this need never happen. And even the things you are aware of, such as the hot air drying option, are still a shock when you encounter them. On the control panel for your toilet, there are three drying options. One hot, one cold, and one that appears to mean titivate, which strobes body heat gusts onto your nethers. I offered this information with no further comment or judgment. Having pressed all the buttons, we finally leave the toilet, enjoy the lavish insanity of a Japanese hotel buffet breakfast, imagine everything to twice, while I tell the girls that, because I am cruel, I have hired a guide for the day to show us Tokyo's culture. You're not going to take us anywhere to show us broken pots, are you? Nancy asks. This is her summation of museums. Tyler, our guide, however, knows exactly how to get the girls on board. In the hotel lobby, he brings out a small device. This, he says, is Wi-Fi. Stay near me and you'll be online all day. They look at him like a god. We walk over to the lift where a porter waits to press the button for us and encounter our first bowing. Yes, bowing. Everything you've seen about the Japanese being very polite and bowing a lot is absolutely true. It's not some mad stereotype like French people walking around with strings of onions around their necks. It's real and it's going to happen to you a lot. You really need to practice this before you go. If you do your first one in the lobby of a hotel after a big breakfast, it's going to be dismal. Have a look at some light to medium strength Japanese bowing on YouTube and pop a couple before you go. You don't want to do a Western just looking to see if I've spilt gravy on my shirt bow. Something a bit crisper and from the hips will make you feel like quite the cosmopolitan guy. Get in there. 
Having negotiated the bowing, Tyler takes us on a circular tour of the city, from shrines to neon to blossom-filled parks and finishing up at the Monster Cafe for lunch, which brings us on to food and a warning to vegetarians and vegans. Japan doesn't really do things without fish in. Bonito, dried tuna flakes, form the basis of nearly everything. You know the vegetarian sushi you love? Well, that's a Californian invention. They don't do it here. And there's no such thing as salad outside the cities. Although all our tour operators go to incredible lengths to cater for Nancy in the countryside, veganism consists of a lot of glutinous rice and boiled swede and broccoli for breakfast. On our last day, we walked for an hour to get a salad, and when Nancy saw her first slice of cucumber for a week, she held it up on her fork and sang God Save the Queen at it while crying. From the thrills of Tokyo, we travelled to the village of Shirakawa Go, an 11th century world heritage site. It fills a remote valley deep in Gifu, with its grass-roofed houses and koi ponds. High in the hills, it's still crusted with snow, to sleep here is to time travel. The walls of the Magoan guesthouse are made of paper. You sleep on tatami mats and you eat in a communal hall where each guest sits on the floor and has their own tiny fire over which they cook their prepared meal. Spearing a fish on a stick and slowly roasting its skin off while listening to the river outside, you feel like a traveller on a ring quest. It's 100% Tolkien and the whole family is lit with wonder at being incarnated for one night in another century. The kids don't even mention that they don't have Wi-Fi, and parents of teenagers will know how extraordinary that is. Shirakawa Go is the first place our shoes become problematic. No shoes inside the houses. You must leave them outside and change into the provided slippers. Everyone knows this. It's a simple rule but seemingly impossible for the Western mind to easily grasp. Again and again, we defile spotless tatami mats with our clumpy Western boots. It's amazing how many times you can mess up someone's carpet. The next day in Takayama, it gets worse. Our arrival is the perfect storm of incorrect bowing and wearing of shoes in the wrong place, all magnified by the fact each new visitor is welcomed by the banging of a gong. Even shy, polite British people will feel like they're some brash twat from Texas in a Hawaiian shirt, clomping all over something delicate and innate. But this is why you travel, to feel otherness, the delicious pleasure and pain of tasting something wholly alien. Every time I travel, it's in the covert hope that I can be disappointed, that I can fly away from it thinking, I don't need to go there again, I'll not miss this place, that place is done. But instead, every time my daughters make me travel, because they're still hungry for new things, I find this one thing. The world is unstoppably beautiful. The more you see of it, the more hungrier you get for it. The more in love you feel with still being alive. We heard Phil read W.H. Auden's poem Nightmail earlier, and steam trains seem to have caught the imagination of countless poets since they were introduced back in the 19th century. Here's one from the 20th century by American poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. Jane? The railroad track is miles away, and the day is loud with voices speaking. Yet there isn't a train goes by all day, but I hear its whistle shrieking. All night... 
There isn't a train goes by, though the night is still for sleeping and dreaming, but I see its cinders red on the sky and hear its engine steaming. My heart is warm with the friends I make, and better friends I'll not be knowing. Yet there isn't a train I wouldn't take, no matter where it's going. Thanks, Jane. Just as eager to hop onto any train, or indeed any form of transport, is the travel writer Bill Bryson. Phil. We're in Switzerland. He writes, I reached Brig by way of Domodossola and the Saint-Plon Pass at about five in the evening. It was darker and cooler here than it had been in Italy, and the streets were shiny with rain. I got a room at the Hotel Victoria overlooking the station and went straight out to look for food, having had nothing to eat since my two bites of mashed fig delight in Locarno at lunchtime. All the restaurants in Brig were German. You never know where you are in Switzerland. One minute everything's Italian, then you travel a mile or two and everyone's talking German or French or some variety of Romanche. All along an irregular line running the length of east-central Switzerland, you can find pairs of villages that are neighbours and yet clearly from different linguistic groups. Saint-Blaise and Erlach, Les Diablerets and Gesteig, Delemont and Laufen. And as you head south towards Italy, the same thing happens again, but with Italian. Brig was a nipple of German speakers, so to speak, between the two. I examined six or seven restaurants, mystified by the menus, wishing I knew the German for liver, pigs, trotters, boiled eyeballs, before chancing upon an establishment called the Restaurant de la Place at the top of the town. Now, this is a nice surprise, I thought, and went straight in, figuring that at least I'd have some idea of what I was ordering. But the name Restaurant de la Place was just a heartless joke. The menu here was German too. It really is the most unattractive language for foodstuffs. If you want whipped cream on your coffee in much of the German-speaking world, you order it mit Schlag. Now, does that sound to you like a frothy and delicious pick-me-up? Or does that sound like the sort of thing smokers bring up first thing in the morning? (laughs) Here, the menu was full of items that brought to mind the noises of a rutting pig. Knoblachbrot, Schweinskotelet Iraval, Schlaggobers. And that was a dessert. I ordered entrecote and frites, which sounded a bit dull after Italy, and indeed so it proved to be. But at least I wouldn't have to hide most of it in my napkin rather than face that awful embarrassing cry of disappointment the waiters always give you when they find you haven't touched your goat's scrotum en croute. At all events, it was an agreeable enough place, as much a bar as a restaurant, dark and plain with a tobacco-stained ceiling, but the waitress was friendly and the beer was large and cold. In the middle of the table sat a large cast-iron platter, which I assumed was an ashtray. And then I had the awful thought that perhaps it was some kind of food receptacle and that the waitress would come along in a minute and put some bread in it or something. I looked around the room to see if any of the other few customers were using theirs as an ashtray and no one seemed to be. So I snatched out my cigarette butt and dead match and secreted them in a pot plant beside the table and then tried to disperse the ash with a blow but it went all over the tablecloth. As I tried to brush it away, I knocked my glass with the side of my hand and slopped beer all across the table. By the time I had finished, much of the tablecloth was a series of grey smudges outlined in a large irregular patch of yellow that looked distressingly like a urine stain. (laughs) 
I casually tried to hide this with my elbow and upper body when the waitress bought my dinner, but she saw instantly what a mess I'd made of things and gave me a look, not of contempt as I had dreaded, but, worse, of sympathy. For one horrible moment, I thought she might tie a napkin round my neck and cut my food up for me. Instead, she retreated to her station behind the bar, keeping a compassionate eye on me throughout the meal, ready to spring forward if any pieces of cutlery should clatter from my grasp or if a sudden spasm should cause me to tip over backwards. I was quite pleased to get out of there. The cast iron pot was an ashtray, by the way. Brig was a bit of a strange place. Historically, it was a staging post on the road between Zurich and Milan and now looked as if it didn't quite know what to do with itself. It was a reasonably sized town, but it appeared to offer little in the way of diversions. It was the kind of place where the red light district would be in a phone box. All the shops sold unarresting products like refrigerators, vacuum cleaners and televisions from behind shiny plate glass windows. Then it occurred to me that the shops in most countries sell unarresting items from behind plate glass windows. It was simply that I was no longer in Italy, which caused me a passing pang of grief. This is the problem with travelling. One day you're sitting with a cappuccino on a terrace by the sea, and the next you're standing in the rain in the dullest town in Switzerland looking at Zanussi's. It dawned on me that I hadn't seen a refrigerator, vacuum cleaner or other truly functional thing on sale anywhere in Italy. I suppose they don't all drive to Brig to buy them, so they must be able to purchase them somewhere in their own country, but I couldn't recall seeing anything. In Brig, however, there was nothing else. I walked the empty streets trying to work up an interest in white goods, but the moon wouldn't take me, and I retired instead to the bar of my hotel, where I drank some beer and read Philip Zeigler's classic account of the Black Death, imaginatively entitled The Black Death, just the thing for those lonely, rainy nights in a foreign country. In the morning, I took a fast train to Geneva. We rattled through a succession of charmless industrial towns, Sierra, Sion, Martini, places that seemed to consist almost entirely of small factories and industrial workshops fringed with oil drums, stacks of wooden pallets, and other semi-abandoned clutter. I'd quite forgotten that a lot of Switzerland is quite ugly. And everywhere there were pylons. I'd forgotten about those, too. The Swiss are great ones for stringing wires. They thread them across the mountainsides for electricity, suspend them from endless rows of gibbets along every railway track, and hang them like washing lines on all their city streets for the benefit of trams. It seems not to have occurred to them that there might be a more attractive way of arranging things. We found the shore of Lake Geneva at Villeneuve and spent the next hour racing along its northern banks at a speed that convinced me that the driver was slumped dead over the throttle. <laughs> we shot past the castle of Chillon. A picturesque blur flew through the stations of Montreux and Vevey, scattering people along the platforms and finally screeched to a long, slow stop at Lausanne, where, presumably, the body of the driver was taken away for recycling. <laughs> I assume the fanatically industrious Swiss don't bury their dead, but use them for making heating oil. And his place was presumably taken by someone in better health. At all events, the final leg into Geneva was made at a more stately pace. That was wonderful. (laughs) Well, you might be wondering how a person becomes a travel writer like Bill Bryson. As it happens, we have a tame one, closely connected to the talking magazine, in the shape of John Plush's own daughter, Hazel. John decided he ought to have a word with her about that. Hazel, you've written for The Telegraph, The Independent, Wanderlust magazine, 
and even Woman and Home. You've been shortlisted for a prestigious Young Writers Award, and all on the subject of travel. Why travel? Well, travel, it's the, it's the dream, isn't it? Um, as you know, when I was younger, I, I went off travelling for the best part of a year, scared you silly with all the stories of the things which I did while I was away, <laughs> um, and just basically felt head over heels for travel in all of its forms. Back then, it was very much a kind of backpacking experience, and I just absolutely loved it. So how did you start your career in journalism? So when I graduated, um, I'd done a degree in English literature. Um, I really wanted to get into journalism. I'd done lots of um, student journalism um, placements and had quite a bit of work experience under my belt. And fortunate enough to get on an internship scheme with a travel magazine called Wanderlust. Now, I had devoured Wanderlust for so many years. For, for me, it was the ultimate publication. So I was absolutely over the moon when they, when they offered me the internship and then went on to offer me a staff position um, on a contract for six months. And then my experience just grew and grew. And, um, what did you learn at Wanderlust? Um, the travel writing doesn't necessarily involve a lot of travel um people say oh you must be traveling all the time you must be on the road constantly well that's really not the case a lot of travel publishing travel media and it's the same for media across the board is editing skills so desk editing research um interviewing people over the phone um you get a lot of stories by doing desk-based research. So just because you're working on a travel publication doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be globetrotting constantly. But I absolutely loved it. I just loved being part of that whole industry. And still to this day, it thrills me that I am part of an industry which is so exciting and so varied. And I get the opportunity to not only go to places, but to meet some really fascinating people and have some pretty exciting experiences as well. After Wanderlust, you went off to Dubai, where you met Gary Rhodes, I understand. Yes, I did, Gary Rhodes. He was lovely. Um, you know what, there's there's a lot of celebrity culture in Dubai, um, as there is everywhere, of course. Um, there's obviously a lot of focus on luxury and um, five-star hotels, seven-star hotels. But for me, really, the magic in Dubai was having a whole different part of the world on my doorstep. And when you're in Dubai, you have places like India on your doorstep, the Philippines, um, the Maldives. And it was just so exciting. And as a young writer and an editor, I was really able to immerse myself in those destinations. Um, I went on a lot of trips, um, either for pleasure or for work. And it was, it was just so exciting. Would you recommend the United Arab Emirates as a holiday destination for a visually impaired person? Absolutely, yes, I would. The hotels are excellent. I mean, really, really lovely. Um, the cultural experience is absolutely fascinating. You, <laughs> Dad, you came to visit me, um, and I remember we went around the mosques, um, we went to the souks, um, sampled lots of food from around the world, um, there really is so much to do there. And actually, geographically, um, it's quite easy to get around Dubai um, and, and Abu Dhabi. Um, there are so many things to experience there as well. You, and you do, the minute you step off a plane, you know that you're in a very 
different destination from from Europe. But that's exciting, you know. If 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 travel excites you, then Dubai is actually a very accessible city. There are many cheap options of getting around. Um, yes, you can get the metro, but also taxis are um, are very reasonably priced. Um, and it's not all the you know the skyscrapers and the shopping malls that everyone talks about. There are markets there. There are cultural centres, and of course, it's a nice little spot of winter sun as well. We hear a lot about a male-dominated society in that part of the world. What did you find was their attitude towards female journalists? Um, I think the UAE is a bit of a bubble culturally. Um, I never, ever had any problems in Dubai. I felt very safe. I felt safer in Dubai than I do in London. And I probably shouldn't admit that to you because you're my dad and now you'll worry. Um, But also... That's just how it was. Um, People are very well looked after over there. And I never had any problems at all. And who are you working with now? I'm doing quite a bit of work at the moment with The Telegraph um, on the travel desk for them. And that's a combination of pitching them features and also working in-house doing shifts with them on the production desk. So that involves lots of editing. I've just finished a big feature for Wanderlust that was 2,500 words on Europe's best rail journeys. And also just got back from Antigua, which was a press trip for Woman and Home, um, which involved a few rum cocktails. Um, But also uh, there was a kind of fitness and um, luxury angle to that as well, which sounds as lovely as it was. You were at the Telegraph uh, on the day that uh, David Cameron resigned after the referendum. What did it feel like to be in the newsroom of the Telegraph when that sort of news was breaking? It was amazing. I, I, I remember I, I went into work early that day because I knew the story, obviously, that was unfolding. I got, I got into the office about 10 minutes before he held the press conference and... I watched it on the screens alongside some of the Telegraph's best journalists and political reporters. And nobody knew what was going on that day. It was a case of, right, everybody has to come in. And the energy in the office that day was incredible. So it's a big open plan office. Um, and I think I took a picture and sent it to you, Dad, because it was it it was just so odd. Everybody was standing up and looking at these screens just scratching their head and going, what is happening? That's certainly a moment from my career which I'll never, ever forget. When you've been on assignment for a paper to a foreign country, have you ever been tempted to stay? (laughs) No, actually. When I travel for work, it's not a holiday. It's very much a rigorous work experience you're getting up at 6am you're touring hotels you're hobnobbing with the prs you're um, trying to cram in as much as you possibly can to the few days that you're in this destination and also all the time that you're out there you're thinking what is my angle on this you might have been asked to go out there to write about say the food in jamaica but you might get there and actually the food in jamaica isn't strong enough for a story the experiences that you've been told by the pr the people who are promoting the destination, they might, might actually not be as strong as, as, as they have promised. So quite often it's a really stressful experience and there is always this pressure to, to find the story. It's, it's why we do it. I, I, can't, I can't go away now without thinking, what's the story on this? What's the angle? Is there a story here that I can sell when I get home? 
I'm going to have to go out and talk to people, interview people, go to places, um, learn about the history, and immerse myself in the culture if I'm actually going to get a, a good story out of the trip. Where do you want to go that you haven't been to yet? Well, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but there are vast swathes of the UK that I haven't explored. And um, so I'd, I'd quite like to do some more travelling within the British Isles. Um, I'd also really like to go to Switzerland again. I know that your dad, my granddad, had a very personal connection with Switzerland um, and enjoyed travelling there a lot. And I would actually really like to go to some of the places that he went to and that he loved as a way of kind of learning a bit more about your family members or people that are close to you through the places that they have been to and that they held very dear. So I would like to go to Switzerland and I would like to experience some of the places that he went to. So you're you're not going to disappear off to the moon or Mars on the island? No, no, I think you're safe from that, Dad. I mean, I like flying, but the idea of space travel doesn't really float my boat. Um, I think we need to be focusing on planet Earth right now and creating some kind of solution to the to the the sheer environmental mess which we have we have created ourselves. You said it, Hazel Plush, daughter mine. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. We'll be hearing more from Hazel later, along with St. Augustine, Rita Dove and Robert Louis Stevenson. We'll have music from gypsy guitarist Robin Nolan, whom you can hear pumping away just now in the background. And we have a new quiz all about transport. But before we get to that, Catherine has been reading Judith Carr's account of her flight with her family from Germany to Switzerland in 1933. Judith Carr died last month uh, at the age of 95, I think it was, and, of course, she is the author and illustrator of The Tiger Who Came to Tea and The Mog Stories in particular. But in a book called When Hitler Stole the Pink Rabbit, she actually tells the story of her own childhood when she and her family did have to leave Germany in 1933, very, very suddenly. The train was crowded, and Anna and Max were glad that they had window seats. They both looked out at the grey landscape tearing past until it began to rain. Then they watched the raindrops arrive with a splash and slowly trickle down the glass pane, but it became boring after a while. What now? Anna looked at Mama out of the corner of her eye. Mama was leaning back in her seat. The corners of her mouth were pulled down, and she was staring at the bald head of the man opposite without seeing him at all. On her lap was her big handbag with the picture of a camel on it, which she'd brought back from some journey with Papa. She was holding it very tight, Anna supposed, because the tickets and passports were in it. She was clutching it so hard that one of her fingers was digging right in the camel's face. Mama, said Anna, you're squashing the camel. What? said Mama. Then she realised what Anna meant and loosened her hold on the bag. The camel's face reappeared, to Anna's relief, looking just as foolish and hopeful as usual. "'Are you bored?' asked Mama. "'We'll be travelling right through Germany, which you've never done. "'I hope the rain stops soon so that you can see it all.' "'Then she told them about the orchards in southern Germany, miles and miles of them. "'If only we were making this journey a little later in the year,' she said, "'you'd be able to see them all in blossom. "'Perhaps just a few of them might be out already,' said Anna. "'But Mama thought it was too early, and the bald man agreed. "'Then he said how beautiful it was.' 
and Anna wished she could see it. If the blossom isn't out this time, she said, can we see it another time? Mama did not answer at once. Then she said, I hope so. The rain did not let up and they spent a lot of time playing guessing games at which Mama turned out to be very good. Later in the afternoon, she and Max walked through the train from end to end and then stood in the corridor. The rain was heavier than ever and dusk came very early. Even if the orchards had been in blossom, they would not have been able to see them. For a while, they amused themselves by watching the fleeing darkness through their reflections on the glass. Then Anna's head began to ache and her nose began to run as though to keep pace with the rain outside. She snuggled back into her seat and wished they would get to Stuttgart. Why don't you look at Gunther's book, said Mama. It was a book for both children, from Gunther's mum. It was called They Grew to Be Great, and she'd written in it, Thank you for all the lovely things, something to read on the journey. It described the early lives of various people who later became famous, and Anna, who had a personal interest in the subject, leafed through it eagerly at first. But the book was so dully written and its tone was so determinedly uplifting that she gradually became discouraged. All the famous people had had an awful time. One of them had a drunken father, another had a stammer, another had to wash hundreds of dirty bottles. They had all had what was called a difficult childhood. Clearly, you had to have one if you wanted to become famous. Dozing in her corner and mopping her nose with her two soaked handkerchiefs, Anna wished that they would get to Stuttgart and that one day, in the long distant future, she might become famous. But as the train rumbled through Germany in the darkness, she kept thinking, difficult childhood, difficult childhood, difficult childhood. Suddenly she found herself being gently shaken. She must have been asleep. Mama said, we'll be in Stuttgart in a few minutes. Anna sleepily put on her coat and soon she and Max were sitting on the luggage at the entrance of Stuttgart station while Mama went to get a taxi. The rain was still pelting down, drumming on the station roof and falling like a shiny curtain between them and the dark square in front of them. It was cold. At last Mama came back. What a place, she cried. They've got some sort of a strike on, something to do with the elections, and there are no taxis. But you see that blue sign over there? On the opposite side of the square, there was a bluish gleam among the wet. That's a hotel, said Mama. We'll just take what we need for the night and make a dash for it. With the bulk of the luggage safely deposited, they struggled across the ill-lit square. The case Anna was carrying kept banging against her leg, and the rain was so heavy that she could hardly see. Once she missed her footing and stepped into a deep puddle so that her feet were soaked. But at last they were in the dry. Mama booked rooms for them, and then she and Max had something to eat. Anna was too tired. She went straight to bed and to sleep. In the morning, they got up while it was still dark. We'll soon see Papa, said Anna, as they ate their breakfast in the dimly lit dining room. Nobody else was up yet, and the sleepy-eyed waiter seemed to grudge them the stale rolls and coffee, which he banged down in front of them. Mama waited until he'd gone back into the kitchen. Then she said, before we get to Zurich and see Papa, we have to cross the frontier between Germany and Switzerland. Do we have to get off the train? asked Max. No said Mama. We just stay in our compartment and then a man will come and look at our passports just like the ticket inspector. But, and she looked at both children in turn, this is very important. When the man comes to look at our passports, I want neither of you to say anything. Do you understand? Not a word. 
Why not? asked Anna. Because otherwise, the man will say, what a horrible, talkative little girl. I think I'll take away her passport, said Max, who was always bad-tempered when he'd not had enough sleep. Mama, appealed Anna. He wouldn't really. Take away our passports, I mean. No, no, I don't suppose so, said Mama. But just in case. Papa's name is so well known, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves in any way. So when the man comes, not a word, remember... Not a single, solitary word. Anna promised to remember. The rain had stopped at last and it was quite easy walking back across the square to the station. The sky was just beginning to brighten and now Anna could see that there were election posters everywhere. Two or three people were standing outside a place marked polling station waiting for it to open. She wondered if they were going to vote and for whom. The train was almost empty and they had a whole compartment to themselves until a lady with a basket got in at the next station. Anna could hear a sort of shuffling inside the basket. There must be something alive in it. She tried to catch Max's eye to see if he had heard it too, but he was still feeling cross and was frowning out of the window. Anna began to feel bad-tempered too and to remember that her head ached and that her boots were still wet from last night's rain. "'When do we get to the frontier?' she asked. I don't know, said Mama. Not for a while yet. Anna noticed that her fingers were squashing the camel's face again. In about an hour, do you think? asked Anna. You never stop asking questions, said Max, although it was none of his business. Why can't you shut up? Why can't you? said Anna. She was bitterly hurt and cast around for something wounding to say. At last she came out with, I wish I had a sister. I wish I didn't, said Max. Mama! wailed Anna. Oh, for goodness sake, stop it, said Mama. Haven't we got enough to worry about? She was clutching the camel bag and peering into it every so often to see if the passports were still there. Anna wriggled crossly in her seat. Everybody was horrible. The lady with the basket had produced a large chunk of bread with some ham and was eating it. No one said anything for a long time. Then the train began to slow down. Excuse me, said Mama, but are we coming to the Swiss frontier? The lady with the basket munched and shook her head. There, you see, said Anna to Max, Mama is asking questions too. Max didn't even bother to answer, but rolled his eyes up to heaven. Anna wanted to kick him, but Mama would have noticed. The train stopped and started again, stopped and started again. Each time, Mama asked if it was the frontier, and each time the lady with the basket shook her head. At last, when the train slowed down yet again at the sight of a cluster of buildings, the lady with the basket said, I dare say we're coming to it now. They waited in silence while the train stood in the station. Anna could hear voices and the doors of other compartments opening and shutting, then footsteps in the corridor. Then the door of their own compartment slid open, and the passport inspector came in. He had a uniform, rather like a ticket inspector, and a large brown moustache. He looked at the passport of the lady with the basket, nodded, stamped it with a little rubber stamp, and gave it back to her. Then he turned to Mama. Mama handed him the passports and smiled. But the hand with which she was holding her handbag was squeezing the camel into terrible contortions. The man examined the passports. Then he looked at Mama to see if it was the same face as on the passport photograph then at Max, and then at Anna. Then he got out his rubber stamp. Then he remembered something and looked at the passports again. Then at last he stamped them and gave them back to Mama. 
Pleasant journey, he said as he opened the door of the compartment. Nothing had happened. Max had frightened her all for nothing. There, you see, cried Anna. But Mama gave her such a look that she stopped. The passport inspector closed the door behind him. We are still in Germany, said Mama. Anna could feel herself blushing scarlet. Mama put the passports back in the bag. There was silence. Anna could hear whatever it was scuffling in the basket, the lady munching another piece of bread and ham, doors opening and shutting further and further along the train. It seemed to last forever. Then the train started, rolling a few hundred yards, and stopped again. More opening and shutting of doors, this time more quickly. Voices saying, Customs, anything to declare? A different man came into the compartment. Mama and the lady both said they had nothing to declare, and he made a mark with chalk on all their luggage, even on the lady's basket. Another wait, then a whistle, and at last they started again. This time the train gathered speed and went on chugging steadily through the countryside. After a long time, Anna said, Are we in Switzerland yet? I think so. I'm not sure, said Mama. The lady with the basket stopped chewing. Oh, yes, she said comfortably. This is Switzerland. We're in Switzerland now. This is my country. It was marvellous. Switzerland, said Anna. We're really in Switzerland. About time too, said Max, and grinned. Mama put the camel bag down on the seat beside her and smiled and smiled. Well, she said, well, we'll soon be with Papa. When the train stopped and they got off on the platform, they looked for Papa. Anna saw him first. He was standing by a bookstall. His face was white and his eyes were searching the crowds milling around the train. Papa, she shouted, Papa. He turned and saw them. And then Papa, who was always so dignified, who never did anything in a hurry, suddenly ran towards them. He put his arms round Mama and hugged her. Then he hugged Anna and Max. He hugged and hugged them all and would not let them go. I couldn't see you, said Papa. I was afraid. I know, said Mama. Before they arrived in England, Judith Carr's family moved on from Switzerland to France, where the jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt was already an established but Romany musician. The Nazis had been hostile to jazz, and during the war, Romany was systematically killed in concentration camps. It's a miracle he survived at all, but survive he did, and gave rise to a particular style of music that is still played by guitarists around the world today, gypsy jazz one of the leading exponents of which is Robin Nolan and his trio, who very recently gave a concert in Huntingdon Hall. John Plush went down to listen and learn. Gypsies, Romanies, travellers, all terms which get lumped together really to suggest a somewhat nomadic lifestyle. Robin Nolan, you're a gypsy jazz player. Are you a nomad? Well, funnily enough, my mum and dad, who were both English, they travelled a lot. And I was actually born in Vietnam. I lived there for a couple of years and we lived in Hong Kong. 
uh, until I was about 10. And then we came back to England via Japan, Russia, and came on the Trans-Siberian Railway. And ever since then, really, travel has been a big part of my life. You know, I live in Amsterdam. I have done for many years, but I travel a lot. And uh, my parents have lived in Spain. And it's definitely been quite a nomadic lifestyle, I guess, even though I have a home. I don't live in a caravan. Of course, Django Reinhardt, he was a, a genuine Romany and he was a bit of a nomad. Obviously, he has an influence or is he more than an influence? Is he in your DNA, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big, it goes beyond the records because when I first heard the records, my dad played them to me and they were old, scratchy records. And I, I was a teenager, didn't really relate. It was only when he took me to the festival near Paris when I saw basically Django's people, so gypsies playing his music under the stars. That's what when it all kind of came together and those same notes and those same tunes become, and it was so much more than just the music. It was the whole culture and the lifestyle and the romance of that music that got me. Sadly, you, you never actually met Django Reinhardt. I suspect he died rather before you were born. Yeah. <laughs> but you did meet George Harrison and you've got quite a relationship with George Harrison and the family. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we were, I was busking on the square in Amsterdam and one of his gardeners happened to buy a CD that we were selling and uh, he took it back to Friar Park, which is where George lived in Henley-on-Thames and gave it to George and then basically my number was on it and George called me up out of the blue and uh, invited me to play at a Christmas party they were having and I had a surreal conversation obviously with him. I didn't believe it was him for ages. And then anyway, we went over there and then he was... He was great. He loved, well, as you know, he's very got a very eclectic taste with music. And um, we played for his friends, i.e. the Beatles and all his other friends. And uh, since then, yeah, I, got, I played many, many times at his place for him and also for his son, Danny, and uh, played at his wake uh, when he passed away. And I'm still very close to Olivia, his widow, and Danny himself. So, yeah, it had a big effect on me. Musically a big effect? Yeah, absolutely. When I was brought up on the Beatles and George was always, fa you know, fascinating. Some of my first licks were Day Tripper and things like that. So I was quite young when I first, when I met him and even when he passed away. But since I've been really discovering his music a bit a bit deeper and, and we even do arrangements, gypsy jazz arrangements of his songs these days. My next album will be all George Harrison songs. Uh, played on these kind of guitars, which I think he would have loved. He didn't play Gypsy himself, did he? No, he, he played. He played. He played Sweet Georgia Brown and those standards and those tunes, and he loved this music. Now, uh, a lot of your life seems to be teaching other people to play the guitar. Yeah, well, that that came by accident. There was more and more people start to ask me, you know, can you show us those chords, or you know, we want to learn. And then I figured out that there was a way of teaching this music simply. Uh, just by using chord diagrams and I could t show some of the chords and the s basic melodies using tablature so it didn't even mean you had to read music and uh, so I made these songbooks around the turn of the century about 2000 ended up being six songbooks with the repertoire that we play in Gypsy Jazz and Django's tunes and they kind of became a bit of a hit and that was just coincided with the beginnings of the internet and we had a site and we sold these books and we used to ship them all around the world a lot to America and North America and in the last 10 years, I've kind of taken that to the digital age and we've, I've got courses and I've got a membership program, uh, which I really help guitarists. And then I've got a YouTube channel and, and I do a lot of stuff on the surface to bring a lot of awareness to this music and show guitarists that actually it's doable and you can have fun playing this music and you don't have to 
you don't have to play 10 hours a day or be a genius to, to get it, to start having fun with this music. So it's my mission to help players start to play this music on whatever level. Do you prefer teaching to performing? I love both. It's it's a they both give me great pleasure, you know. So this evening I'm I'm performing. That's that's a real treat to be able to do that. But I love teaching, and I love the you know I do it from home. I do it from or a hotel room. I, I use the internet. I do live lessons, and it's a real buzz to to help people from all corners of the earth who are watching. So I really love both. Would you say the guitar is an accessible instrument for a visually impaired person? Yeah, I I, I would say so. Uh, I know a couple of students who who can't see, and I know a great gypsy musician called Char Limburger, who's uh, who can't see, and he plays all sorts of instruments, and he's one of the most amazing musicians I know. What would you say defines gypsy jazz as a style? I think it's the the rhythm, really, and they call it in French la pompe. It's the swing. The jum, 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 jum. So it's that really driving rhythm, which you don't get in other musics. That's what would define the gypsy jazz. And the word gypsy, you know, that that's, it's, it, I mean, Django Rana didn't know what gypsy jazz was. Uh, he never heard of it like that. He was playing jazz music and he kind of invented this new form of jazz and I guess we just label it gypsy jazz because he was a gypsy. Could a, could a non-guitarist master that quite easily? I, I, I believe so. I've, you know, on the surface of it, it sounds very simple and, and it, it can naively be simple. You know, even if I don't use my left hand, I just use my pick. Uh, it could be as simple as four downstrokes to the bar with a slight accent on two and four, which would be like... Even without a pick. And it can be very simple, this rhythm. It doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, that's a, that's a, a mistake when guitarists try to get... All these things, it kind of... The simplicity is, is, is the key in, in the swing, I think, as well. It's like in the drums, isn't it? Where you, you actually just want a straight four in a bar that or really two. That really works. That really works in this music as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, in how you get that, that very dry sound. Is, there, yeah. is, is that a fingering technique somehow? Yeah, well, basically, uh, when you play through a chord, like that's an E7, first chord of Sweet Georgia Brown. So instead of letting it ring like that, I do the same action with my right hand, uh, but keep the left hand fretted then it just sounds. But as I pull up the, the, the fingers, as I fall through the chord and cut it off to make it staccato, so, so that's just the left hand coming up there. And so, I do that four times in a row. Then you've got... You can see my left hand is kind of coming up and down. So your fingers, suddenly, rather than just holding the chord with the, the fret, they're... Becoming dampers yeah, on the string. Yeah, they're becoming dampers. That's right, and, and that you can you can see that like that. Yeah, exactly. How do you come by an internal metronome that you stick at the same tempo for all those yeah, that, bars? That that's 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 not easy to come by. You know, there's there's many players who struggle with 
mostly in this music slowing down. We have very fast tempos, you know, like dark eyes. Starts off very fast, so... I know I, I never actually really practice with a metronome, but I'm I'm advising players to do that and just set a, a dry metronome on and just try and play with the metronome, keeping time, and and you just want to kind of work on it until that feels effortless. So, how would a non-guitarist start if they wanted to play this sort of, of music? Well, get your hands on a guitar with six strings, ideally. And then learn minor swing, which is like the entry song into this music. It's the one that goes, and then learn the rhythm first. That's the that's the key. Learn the voicing. This it's just a, that's a typical three note voicing we use in this music. You can kind of slide that chord from the A minor up to the tenth fret. It's the D minor. On the seventh fret, it's the E seven, and that's the three chords of minor swing. So then you're gonna do that rhythm up to D minor E7 and basically I would start by learning that simple rhythm with that one chord shape and minor swing and of course check out my YouTube channel and ideally subscribe to my membership <laughs> Robin Nolan thank you very much indeed you're totally welcome my pleasure absolute pleasure Half a century before Django Reinhardt spearheaded gypsy jazz in the living nightmare that was France under the Nazis, Robert Louis Stevenson embarked upon a tour of the French Cévennes with his donkey Modestine, a tour which itself was a bit of a nightmare at times. Jane. It was two o'clock in the afternoon before I got my journal written up and my knapsack repaired for I was determined to carry my knapsack in the future and have no more ado with baskets. And half an hour afterwards I set out for Le Chéard l'Evêque, a place on the borders of the forest of Mercure. A man, I was told, should walk there in an hour and a half, and I thought it scarce too ambitious to suppose that a man encumbered with a donkey might cover the same distance in four hours. All the way up the long hill from Langogne, it rained and hailed alternately. The wind kept freshening steadily, although slowly. Plentiful hurrying clouds, some dragging veils of straight rain shower, others massed and luminous as though promising snow, careered out of the north and followed me along my way. I was soon out of the cultivated basin of the Allier and away from the ploughing oxen and such-like sights of the country. Moor, heathery marsh, tracks of rock, pines, woods of birch, all jewelled with autumn yellow. Here and there, a few naked cottages and bleak fields. These were the characters of the country. Hill and valley followed valley and hill. The little green and stony cattle tracks wandered in and out of one another, split into three or four, died away in marshy hollows and began again sporadically on hillsides or at the borders of a wood. There was no direct road to Shalar and it was no easy affair to make a passage in this uneven country and through this intermittent labyrinth of tracks. It must have been about four when I struck Sangaros and went on my way rejoicing in a sure point of departure. 
Two hours afterwards, the dusk rapidly falling, in a lull of the wind, I issued from a fir wood where I had long been wandering and found not the looked-for village but another nightmarish bottom among rough and tumble hills. For some time past, I had heard the ring of cattle bells ahead and now, as I came out of the skirts of the wood, I saw near upon a dozen cows and perhaps as many more black figures which I conjectured to be children although the mist had almost unrecognisably exaggerated their forms. These were all silently following each other round and round in a circle, now taking hands, now breaking up with chains and reverences. A dance of children appeals to the very innocent and lively thoughts, but at nightfall on the marshes the thing was eerie and fantastic to behold. Even I, who am well-read enough in Herbert Spencer, felt a sort of silence fall for an instant on my mind. The next I was pricking Modestine forward and guiding her like an unruly ship through the open. In a path, she went doggedly ahead of her own accord as before a fair wind, but once on the turf, or among heather, the brute became demented. The tendency of lost travellers to go round in a circle was developed in her to the degree of passion, and it took all the steering I had in me to keep even a decently straight course through the single field. While I was thus desperately tacking through the bog, children and cattle began to disperse, until only a pair of girls remained behind. From these I sought direction on my path. The peasantry in general were but little disposed to counsel a wayfarer. One old devil simply retired into his house and barricaded the door on my approach, and I might beat and shout myself hoarse, he turned a deaf ear. Another, having given me a direction which, as I found afterwards I had misunderstood, complacently watched me going wrong without adding a sign. He did not care a stalk of parsley if I wandered all night upon the hills. As for these two girls, they were a pair of impudent sly sluts with not a thought but mischief. One put out her tongue at me. The other bade me follow the cows and they both giggled and jogged each other's elbows. The beast of Gévaudin ate about a hundred children of this district. I began to think of him with sympathy. Leaving the girls, I pushed on through the bog and got into another wood and upon a well-marked road. It grew darker and darker. Modestine, suddenly beginning to smell mischief, bettered the pace of her own accord and from that time forward gave me no trouble. It was the first sign of intelligence I had occasion to remark in her. At the same time, the wind freshened into half a gale and another heavy discharge of rain came flying up out of the north. At the other side of the wood, I sighted some red windows in the dusk. This was the hamlet of Fuzilik, three houses on a hillside near a wood of birches. Here I found a delightful old man who came a little way with me in the rain to put me safely on the road for Shalard. He would hear of no reward, but shook his hands above his head almost as if in menace, and refused volubly and shrilly in unmitigated patois.
All seemed right at last. My thoughts began to turn upon dinner and a fireside, and my heart was agreeably softened in my bosom. Alas, and I was on the brink of newer and greater miseries. Suddenly, at a single swoop, the night fell. I have been abroad in many a black night, but never in a blacker. A glimmer of rocks, a glimmer of the track where it was well beaten, a certain fleecy density, or night within night for a tree. This was all I could discriminate. The sky was simply darkness overhead. Even the flying clouds pursued their way invisibly to human eyesight. I could not distinguish my hand at arm's length from the track, nor my goad at the same distance from the meadows or the sky. I should have camped long before, had I been properly provided, but as this was to be so short a stage, I had bought no wine, no bread for myself, and little over a pound for my lady friend. Added to this, that I and Modestine were both handsomely wetted by the showers. But now, if I could have found some water, I should have camped at once in spite of all. Water, however, being entirely absent except in the form of rain, I determined to return to Fuziek and ask a guide a little further along my way. A little farther lend thy guiding hand. The thing was easy to decide and harder to accomplish. In this sensible, roaring blackness, I was sure of nothing but the direction of the wind. To this, I set my face. In the dark, in a foreign country, a predicament very familiar to the travel writer James Holman, who in the early 19th century set out on his own epic journey. The trip held a special challenge for him, not so much on account of the dangers he encountered along the way, but because he, too, was in the dark, constantly. He was the first blind person to circumnavigate the world, and he did it on his own. On the 20th, I called at the post diligence office with a view of securing a place for Magdeburg and was not a little surprised on being informed that their regulations positively prevented them from taking a blind passenger. In consequence of this communication, accompanied by a friend, I waited upon the director, but, being engaged at a council, we addressed ourselves to a gentleman whom we found at his office, and who most politely assured us that the regulation did exist, but he would endeavour to procure a suspension of it in my favour. The reason he assigned was that no ground for detention should be occasioned by the necessity the driver would be under of assisting such passenger in and out of the coach. It appears, however, by the following clause in their regulations that another reason existed for the exclusion, and which, although the enforcing it, in my instance, would have been a gross misconstruction, still might be deemed sufficient for German precision to act upon. Rule 11. The postilions are forbidden under a penalty to take up any person secretly, or such as are called blind passengers, for the consideration of a fee or drink money. In the afternoon, my friend received a letter from the director which removed the difficulty I was placed under, and the following is a translation of this official document. Sir, 
I am just in receipt of your communication of this day and respectfully acquaint you that a place has been secured by the Flying Post to Magdeburg, an exception made in favour of the celebrated blind Mr Holman. On the evening prior to my departure, I called upon this latter gentleman to take leave of him, on which occasion he took the opportunity of inquiring into which parts of the world I had already travelled. When, amongst others, I named St Helena, he exclaimed that he had a drawing of it and immediately brought it out from an adjoining room to inquire whether I thought it a correct resemblance. This is only one of the many instances in which persons with whom I have been in conversation have forgotten my want of sight and presented objects for my inspection or for me to take from them, and occasionally they have only had their recollection recalled by some unexpected movement of my hand, overthrowing what they offered, as, for instance, a cup of tea. Others, recollecting that I am suffering from some deprivation, mistake the sense and begin to shout at me as if I were hard of hearing. In short, this feeling is so general that almost everyone who is not intimately acquainted with me elevates his voice when in conversation. When I am desired to give my hand to examine anything by the touch, they take it as if my sense of feeling were deficient, squeezing it rudely and pressing it forcibly on the subject of examination, as if I were about to ascertain the condition of a bird or beast. Whereas my sense of touch is most delicate, and all that I require is to pass the hand lightly over the surface of a body, and then the result is both pleasing and satisfactory. Another circumstance which was somewhat ludicrous occurred during this visit. While the governor was gone into the adjoining room to fetch his drawing of St Helena, I was induced to inquire from my friend, who accompanied me, what extraordinary animal it was that was making the singular snoring or breathing noise on the other side of him, and which had for some time attracted my attention. Unfortunately, it was one of the principal councillors of Tobolsk, who had a peculiar obstruction in his nasal organs, which produced a singular wheezing noise. Besides, the gentleman was of a very diminutive stature, so that his head was not much above the level of that of a good-sized Newfoundland dog, and I really mistook him for some nondescript Siberian animal. This proves how cautious we ought to be in speaking in the dark. On the second night we halted at the same house as we had slept at after leaving Prague, and where the fat and accomplished landlord adopted a new mode of entertaining me by placing himself at my side with his guitar and accompanying it with his voice. But whether it arose from his want of skill or my want of taste, I did not find his singing so bewitching as that of the prima donna of the opera. I had some difficulty in getting him to comprehend my wish to have tea prepared. At length, however, he sent to the apothecaries for some, and when it arrived, exultingly brought it to me in a small flat paper made up like an emetic powder, exclaiming, It is right good Russian. On examination, I found about half a teaspoonful of fine-grained scented tea. When I complained of the small quantity, he assured me it was very strong. It was therefore put into the pot, and I certainly, in all the course of my travels, never drank any beverage of the kind that tasted stronger of the water. James Holman, writing around 1820. An anagram of the year 1820, 2018, saw another blind travel journalist, Rob Crossan, describing the world as he saw it, Catherine. 
quick travel tip. If you want prompt service at a busy hotel check-in desk, then walk into a glass door. It certainly worked for me in Tashkent, Uzbekistan last year. The combination of my having the severe visual impairment of albinism, coupled with the Stygian gloom of the charmingly brutalist hotel reception area, caused the collision between an unopened door and my six-foot frame. A trio of bellboys came sprinting from their usual position, huddled by an ashtray near the elevator. Picking me up and checking for bruises, one of the men asked me, in oddly Lancastrian-edged English, if I needed additional help. Explaining that I was an albino, he smiled benignly and led me directly to the manager at the reception desk. Please take good care of this man, uttered the doorman solemnly. He is Albanian. Paul Theroux's comment that tourists don't know where they've been, travellers don't know where they're going, does have a brilliantly unintentional meaning to me as an all-but-blind globetrotter. Theroux was, I assume, referring to a lack of cultural curiosity and a tendency for conceit among vacationers of both chattering and non-chattering classes. For me, though, the quote succeeds better in a more literal sense. I really don't know where I'm going. Not metaphorically, but literally. Can't read a map. What's that thing I just bumped into? Am I even in the right city? Lost. Because I see the world differently to you. And I don't mean that in a superior travel writer, aesthete sense. I mean that I see the world in a way that, were you to experience it for ten seconds, would prompt an immediate plummet into the kind of optical terror usually only reserved for those who spent extended periods of time at Luton Airport. As well as albinism, I have the dancing eyes condition of nystagmus. Shaken, Baked and combined, this disability duo creates a world of ultra-extreme short-sightedness mixed with a liberal sprinkling of mild hallucinating during the daytime and outright blindness past sunset. Taking this exciting double-header of conditions onto the road over the last 15 years as a travel journalist has led me to a few notions which I now hold on to as firmly as any escalator handrail. Chiefly, I've come to believe that we think about disability in much the same way we think about the class system. Initially, it's something that we think we've outgrown now that we're all sophisticated, diverse, multicultural, planet-jaunting, shibboleth-busters. Whereas at the first sign of dissent, such as a disabled person like me not behaving in a docile, endlessly thankful way and loudly telling you to sod off if you grab my arm without asking me, then a regression to more atavistic attitudes is as brutal as it is swift. Shouldn't they have their own carriage? I once saw a cashmere-clad couple ask each other in crisply acidic RP English whilst on a train to Scotland, when a tweed-clad man with a particularly dexterous version of Tourette shouted loudly and brilliantly, Cock sandwich! at them. I refuse to this day to believe it wasn't at least half intentional. I'm not above similar levels of industrial Anglo-Saxon invective myself when on the road, particularly when confronted with airport departure screen monitors so minuscule and ancient that at any given moment I suspect the picture might change to show the third man while I squint painfully and promptly miss my connecting flight. Similar levels of BMR 
Blind Man's Rage, emerge when I'm confronted with cities which have more UNESCO World Heritage Sites than functioning pedestrian crossings. Yes, I'm looking at you, Cairo, Delhi and Naples. And there's a special place in purgatory for the designers who created the signage on the Washington DC metro system. The fonts are so small as to require access to the Hubble telescope in order to accurately read them. At times like this, my only salvation is to think of fellow blind writers. Borges, Homer and Joyce all got around in a less enlightened age and survived. John Milton, once he lost his sight, wrote Paradise Lost. It makes my memoir of travel experiences. Working title, Occasional Hotel Room Key, Temporarily Lost Then Found Again Later, seem rather trivial in comparison. And sometimes, of course, the conflations and confusions of visually impaired travel can be simply joyous. I'm thinking of the Swiss couple who gave me their first-class seat on a flight back from Los Angeles simply because I promised to have a Skype chat with their blind teenage son. There was the barista in Melbourne who lured me into participating in an astonishing Fijian fashion shoot that required blind and visually impaired models. Best of all, there was the Duke joint just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, where on a night where the rain fell like gunfire on the clapboard roof of a single room sticky with neon, formica and tamale husks, I joined an impressively corpulent blues trio on stage to bark out the lyrics to Hellhound on My Trail to an audience of local men, most of whom seemed to have taken Robert Johnson's advice very literally and had long ago sold their souls to the devil at the crossroads. You did good, blind Roby, said the bassist to me afterwards, whilst pouring wild turkey bourbon into a chipped tumbler. Only reason we let you on stage, though, is because our singer got struck by lightning last night. A salutary warning indeed. Cashing in my soul to Satan may be one way to make a living, but as for my eyes, well, even in their current factory-floored, dismal stage of repair, as long as I'm still travelling, they're definitely not for sale. Vacation by Rita Dove. I love the hour before takeoff. That stretch of no time. No home but the grey vinyl seats linked like unfolding paper dolls. Soon we shall be summoned to the gate. Soon enough there'll be the clumsy procedure of row numbers and perforated stubs. But for now, I can look at these ragtag nuclear families with their cooing and bickering. Or the healed bachelorette trying to ignore a baby's wail. And the baby's exhausted mother waiting to be called up early. While the athlete, one monstrous hand asleep on his duffel bag, listens, perched like a seal trained for the plunge. Even the lone executive who has wandered this far into summer with his lasered itinerary. Briefcase knocking his knees. Even he has worked for the pleasure of bearing no more than a scrap of himself into this hall. He'll dine out. She'll sleep late. They'll let the sun burn them happy all morning. A little hope, a little whimsy. Before the loudspeaker blurts and we leap up 
helped become flight 828, now boarding at gate 17. Before you get as far as the departure lounge, there are one or two pretty essential things you'll need to have organised. Here's Hazel Plush again with a checklist. So, your holiday's booked and your passport's up to date. Just check that. Some countries insist that you have at least six months left on it before it expires. Anyway, you've organised your holiday money, haven't you? And the big day is almost here. All you need to do now is pack. What sort of bag should you take? A backpack is worth a thought. When it's empty, it takes up less space than a suitcase with wheels. And if it's on your back, it won't matter what sort of terrain you encounter. Be wary of weight, though. You need to make sure you can actually carry it on your back. The big question is, what do you put in your bag? First of all, you need to make sure you've got the right clothes with you to suit your destination and what you're going to be doing while you're there. Try to pack light. A jacket with zippered pockets can be a good idea as you can hide away all your really important stuff, like your passport, the address of your first hotel, and change suitable for tipping people who've been helpful along the way. Sportswear is very adaptable. It's usually pretty comfortable and won't mind being scrunched up in the bottom of a bag. Having said that, of course, if you roll things up quite tightly and individually before packing them, they'll be less inclined to wrinkle and take up less space. You may want to pack a few creature comforts too. A pair of slippers is always nice to have around, and perhaps a few of your favourite tea bags. If you're heading east, particularly to a Muslim country, dress modestly. Pack some long trousers or a skirt, and some way of covering at least your shoulders, ladies, if not your whole head if you'll be visiting any mosques. It goes almost without saying that ladies' cleavage and your midriff should also be covered. Remember that in winter, even a hot country can be chilly at night. So, for ladies, a shawl can help with this and be an aid to modesty during the day. Don't forget to take a copy of your whole itinerary that a sighted person can read, along with the addresses of all your accommodation, which you can show to a taxi driver. A map is a good backup too. Other essential items are passport, worth checking you've got that again, money of course, phone charger, toothbrush and a hat or cap to protect you from the sun. If you're off for only a short break, you may get away with just one piece of hand luggage which you keep with you at all times, which is great as you won't need to go through the palaver of reclaiming it at the other end. In your hand luggage, which you can take on the plane with you, put all the things you can't afford to be without – just in case your checked-in bag should get lost. Things like medications, camera, jewellery, comb, toothbrush, extra articles of clothing that mix and match with your travel outfit, including a change of underwear. That way, you can cope if your luggage should go missing for a while. It happens. If you do have to put stuff in the hold, to help identify it at your destination, find a way to make it look distinct from everyone else's, and consider taking a photograph of it to show someone who's assisting you and who maybe doesn't speak your language what they're looking for. If you're taking a guide dog with you, make sure you have the necessary documentation confirming that it has been trained as an assistance dog. Speaking of guide dogs, as well as some poo bags, pop into your hand luggage a few folded paper towels, a travel-sized pack of wet wipes and a few small travel treats for your four-legged helper. For more information on travelling with a guide dog, visit guidedogs.org.uk. 
And remember that although you can put as much liquid as you want into a checked-in bag, there are security restrictions on taking liquids on board in your hand luggage. But water for your dog can be provided by the cabin staff, though it might be wise to take some kind of collapsible bowl with you. Lastly, don't forget to take something to do on the journey. But remember, the most important thing to take with you, apart from your passport of course, is a positive attitude and above all else, a sense of humour. Hazel's dad gave us a crossword earlier to help pass the time when travelling and he's devised another little game for us to keep the kids amused. When Hazel was a little girl, we used to play I Spy to keep her happy on long journeys. This is a sort of spot the vehicle where I play you a recording of some form of transport and you have to guess what it is. Not so much I spy as I hear with my little ear something beginning with... Well, you will have guessed by now that that's an emergency vehicle, police, fire, ambulance, but which one? Well, Luke Rose was the driver, and he has a very action-packed job. But still, we're going at a million miles now. Running the hose reel off, which is like our great big black hose pipe, they can take control of that, and they'll go into the building then. They'll go into the fire. So you'll have guessed that I had a great morning playing fire engines. In the centre of Worcester now, quite near the cathedral... ideas? Well that, that was a motorised road sweeper. This next was in the gardens which are situated behind the talking newspaper offices. Whatever it was, was being driven by one Oliver Jones, who told me a little about what he was doing. How long does it take you to mow the Commandery Gardens? About 30 minutes. And how often do you do that? Uh, once a week, normally between March and uh, to November time. Oliver was driving a sit-on lawnmower. Did we all get that before he told us? This next one's very easy. That was on board a train coming into Shrub Hill Station. The next one starts very quiet. So we're tracking along to the east, we're doing about 14, 15 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's changing slightly according to the breeze. So we're at 2,000 feet above the sea. That was a birthday present from my daughter. A ride in a hot air balloon. Very much back down to earth now in Cathedral Square.
And that was a young lad riding on a skateboard. OK, you get a point if you said horses, but it was an easy point. Heading for the skies again now. That was a lift. Where was the lift? It was Debenham's lift. Another very recognisable sound now. That, of course, was a helicopter. And the last one is very simple but very stylish. I'll give you a clue. It's a saloon car. But it's not just any saloon car. I'm being chauffeur-driven by my friend Mel in his pride and joy. And what is this, Mel? A 1970 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Notice it's coupe, not coupe. It's a big car, even by American car standards of the day. It's 19 feet long, 7.7 .7 litres. What do you get to the gallon? We don't talk about that one. <laughs> Keeping it below 70 miles an hour, it usually does about 19. I've owned it for 28 years, and I can't think of anything I'd prefer to own. <laughs> Ten modes of transport, each with its own distinctive sound. Did you guess them all? A mat was our final destination this month. If you're going to get away somewhere this summer, we hope you have the most splendid time. We'll be back in October, when we'll be examining the nuts and bolts of furniture. And so in the meantime, it's goodbye from Catherine. Goodbye. From Phil. Goodbye. And from Jane, who has one final word attributed to St Augustine. The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only one page. Goodbye. Copying this month was by Sylvia and David Day. Administration was by Carol Hartle. And the producer and editor-in-chief was John Plush. I'm Pippa Curtis, and this is the Robin Nolan Gypsy Jazz Trio playing us out with Mocum Swing. Swing. <laughs>